There are uh, many young people today who are leaving the faith. Uh, I say many young people, there are many older people as well. And uh, it's become such a phenomenon today that it's actually been given uh, a new name. You may or may not have heard of it. Uh, People are talking about how young people are deconstructing their faith. There is a great deconstruction going on where people who initially accepted the Bible, believed Jesus was who he said he was, are starting to rethink and to examine what they believe. Uh, Is it really true after all? And as I say, this is an increasing phenomenon today. It's always existed, but perhaps it's getting greater in our day and age. And there's a variety of reasons uh, such people give for why they are rethinking their faith. Uh, Some complain about the hypocrisy in the church, and they see so much uh, sin and evil even within the church, and they think, well, if that's the church, then I don't want to be a part of it. Others object to the church's teaching on uh, sexuality and other matters uh, of great importance today. But another common reason that is given is discomfort with the teaching regarding hell. Uh, That is a very common reason given by many to say why they are rethinking their faith in Christ. Because they think, how could a God, a good God, send people to eternal, everlasting torment? And they think... How can such a God be? Uh, I did a little Google online uh, just to see uh, what people are saying this. And literally the first result on Google was uh, a girl writing a blog uh, about how once she uh, was a professing Christian, went to church and the rest, um, but now was rethinking it and had in fact left. The church. This is what she said. She said, A few years ago, I began to seriously reconsider my lifelong beliefs. It began with a series of questions and doubts and ended with me leaving my old Christian faith behind. One of the first dominoes to fall was my belief in hell. And I was surprised to realize just how foundational this belief was to my entire worldview. The whole idea of hell fascinates me. Where did it come from? Is there actually any proof that hell exists? Did the people who wrote the Bible even believe in it? It's pretty intriguing to me. Maybe I'm just a strange person. She said that was the first domino to fall. The teaching in the Bible about hell. And she couldn't wrap her head around it. And that's really the objection uh, I want to look at this morning. Just in recent weeks we've been looking at various difficult questions that people ask. And the question I want to broadly look at this morning is, why would God make a hell? 
why is there a hell? Especially in the light of so many people abandoning the faith because of it. But when I address it, uh, I want to address it the way Jesus addressed the question. And it might surprise you that Jesus did address this objection, and he addressed it specifically. Uh, He does address that question in the parable that we read earlier. Uh, So if you do have your Bible, it might be helpful to have it open at Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to look at this parable and what it teaches us about the objection that so many people make, that God is too harsh to make a hell for those who disobey him. And Jesus told this parable about three servants, and each of them are given money by their master. Uh, One of them is given, as it were, ten bags of gold, uh, five talents, uh, a little, uh, again, Google, and discovered a talent, uh, I've forgotten the exact number now, I should have written it down, but it's a talent is a large number of days' wages, and this man is given ten, uh, sorry, five, is that right, was it ten or five? Uh, Five, he gave him five talents of gold. Imagine it as five bags of gold. He gave him a lot, and he instructs the servant to use that money wisely that he may get a return on his investment when the master comes back from his long journey. To the second servant, he gives five bags of gold, two talents. And to the last, he gives just one bag of gold, uh, one talent. And it is like that with us as well. God is our master. Whether we're a Christian or not, that is the case. God is our master. He is our creator, and he has a claim on us. And to each of us, he gives certain gifts and abilities. We don't all have the same gifting. We don't have all the same opportunities. We don't all have the same knowledge. But God has given something to everyone. Some have ten bags of gold, as it were. Some have five bags of gold. Others have just one. Nevertheless, we have all been given something by God. And God expects a return on his investment. He wants us to serve him with what he has given to us. Now, a long time later, the master returns. It's interesting, by the way, that it says that it was after a long time. Uh, Some people... Uh, say, well, when is Christ coming back? (laughs) It seems a long time. Well, Jesus said that it was after a long time that this master came back. And he came to settle accounts with the servants. And he brings the first servant forward, the one who he'd given uh, five talents to. And the uh, servant comes up to him and he says, look, uh, I have made five talents more. You can see that in verse 20. You gave me five talents, and I have made five talents more. And the master says in verse 21, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then the second servant comes up, the one you've given two talents to. 
And the servant with two talents says in verse 22, Lord, you delivered me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. Verse 23, the Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, before we move on to the third servant, notice what we learn about the master in the way he treats these two servants. Notice that his judgment is fair, but it's also generous. These servants give a return on his investment, and he gives them a reward proportional to what they have gained in return. And he is lavish in his reward of them. The master judges them based on what he gave to them. And the Bible makes very, very clear this is how God judges us also. To make very, very clear, heaven is a gift. Uh, None of us earn heaven. Nobody will get to heaven and be able to say, I did this, that is why I'm here. No, it's because of what Christ has done that we get heaven. But in heaven, the Bible does teach that there are rewards. Not everyone's experience of heaven will be identical. And the way we live now will influence how we live then. Whether we go to heaven is dependent on whether we have faith in Christ or not, and for no other reason. But our experience of heaven is affected by the way we live now, what we do with what God has given to us. Someone put it like this. They said, we will all have our cups full in heaven But some people will have bigger cups than others. Uh, There is a difference in God's judgment because God always judges fairly. And God judges based upon what we know. And those who did much with little will have a greater reward than those who did little with much. But the same is also true in the opposite direction. When it comes to punishment, God also judges fairly. And there are degrees of punishment based on what we did with what we knew. So the person who never heard the gospel, the person who never read the Bible, the person who never had all the privileges that we have here this morning that person will be judged differently to how we will be judged because they have less less knowledge than we do. They will still be judged because all of us have some knowledge. Whether we live on a Pacific island somewhere with no uh, no, uh, contact with the Bible or whether we live in the UK with thousands of churches up and down the country, we will all be judged But God will judge us based on what we know. Hell is eternal, i.e. there is no way of repentance after death. 
But that does not mean everyone's experience of hell will be exactly the same, just as not everyone's experience of heaven will be exactly the same. And we don't know the details of that. Uh, Jesus said, didn't he, of Sodom and Gomorrah. He said it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than those cities who heard him speak. He said it would be more tolerable for them. And he doesn't give more detail than that. We don't know in what way it will be more tolerable. It will be bad enough, but it won't be as bad as those who heard Christ, who heard his very words and yet did not repent. So that in itself helps us put hell in perspective. It's not that God gives a blanket condemnation on all sinners, whether it's just a child who stole something from their little brother or from a mass genocidal maniac. There is degrees of judgment, and God always judges fairly. Hell is eternal, but that does not mean the experience of hell will be the same for every individual. So first of all, just as so far what we've looked at this parable, we see that hell isn't quite what so many people think it is. God is fair. God is just. And no one will ever suffer a second more than they absolutely deserve. And we can trust him with that. But now let's come on to the third servant. We've seen how... God has rewarded the first two servants who have given him a return on the investment he gave to them. But now we see the third servant. And listen to what the third servant says uh, in verse 24. Uh, It says, Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and hid your talents in the ground. Look, there, you have what is yours. Do you hear what the servant says to explain his inaction? Because when he received the talent, the bag of gold, instead of using it to gain more, Instead, what he did is he ran away and he hid it in the ground. And in the ground, there would be no return on the investment. And the reason he gives is, because, Master, I knew you were harsh. I knew you were a hard master. You reap where you have not sown. You gather where you have not scattered seeds. He essentially accuses his master of being unjust and unfair. And he says, because I knew you were unjust and unfair, therefore I didn't use what you gave to me. Do you hear the parallel to what so many people do today? People say, I can't believe in a God who would make a hell. I can't believe in a God who commanded for the destruction of the Canaanites. I can't believe in a God who killed Uzzah, who merely touched the Ark of the Covenant. I can't believe in a God who executed Nadab and Abihu when they offered 
uh, unauthorized fire on the altar. All those are stories in the Old Testament. And they say, I cannot believe in, I cannot follow, I cannot serve a God like that. And so they, as it were, hide what God has given to them. And they bury it in the ground and they go and do their own thing and not what God has told them. It's interesting, as we hear that third servant, do you notice that it doesn't really make sense? Uh, He says, I hid the talent because I knew you were unjust. But that doesn't really follow, does it? The master is still his master. Just because the servant doesn't like the way the master does things doesn't change the fact that he is the servant. And the master reveals the problem to the third servant. Look at verses 26 and 27. It says, But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I would receive back my own with interest. This is what the master says. He says, you believe I'm unjust. You believe I'm harsh. He's not, by the way, acknowledging that that is the case. What he's saying is, you believe I'm unjust. You believe in your mind that I'm unfair. But even if that is the case, what you should have done was at least done the bare minimum with my money. I'm still your master. Even if you think I'm a horrible master, even if you think I'm a harsh master, even if you don't agree with the way I do things, at the very, very least, you could have done the bare minimum and put the money in the bank and I could have gained some interest from it. Instead... The servant did nothing. The servant's problem wasn't actually the master was harsh. The problem was he did not want to obey. He was, as the master put it, a lazy and disobedient servant. The reality was he didn't want to be obedient. Let me put that in modern day terms for us sitting here. Uh, Perhaps you this morning uh, object to uh, how harsh God appears to be sometimes in the Bible. Perhaps you have difficulties with the uh, idea of hell. But let me ask you a question. Would you obey God more? Would you serve him more faithfully if hell did not exist? Would your temptations in life get less if hell did not exist? Well, they wouldn't, would they? Your temptations, the things which draw us away from God, they wouldn't diminish if the Bible did not teach about hell. Because the reason we commit sin, the reason we disobey God isn't because there's a hell. 
isn't because God judges sin. The reason we sin is because we want to. Deep down in our hearts, we want to do what is wrong. We even want to do things that we know are wrong. It's got nothing to do with the harshness or otherwise of God. That is simply a red herring. It's simply an excuse to excuse us doing what we want to do. Do you see that? Do you see how unjust or just God is, is completely irrelevant to us doing the right thing. The reason we lie isn't because God is unjust. The reason we lie is because often we are cowards and we want to escape a difficult situation. The reason we don't visit the person who is sick and needs help isn't because God is unjust. It's because we are selfish and are thinking of ourselves. Do you see the point? Jesus pinpoints, the master in this parable pinpoints what this servant's problem is. The servant is just like Adam in the Garden of Eden. Do you remember what Adam said? God came to Adam and said, what is it you have done? And immediately Adam says, the woman who you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. Now the real problem was Adam listened to what Eve said, which was contrary to what God said. But what did he do? He turned around and managed to blame God. And he said, God, you shouldn't have given me the woman. This is your fault, God. You're unjust. You have got it wrong. When that wasn't the problem, was it? The problem was in Adam's own heart. And that's exactly what this master says to this third servant. He says, it's nothing to do with how just or unjust I am. It's because you are lazy and disobedient and you want to do what you want to do and not listen to me. And as we can see, the the servant reaps the consequences in verse 28 to 30. The master says to him, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The master gives the servant justice. The servant has proven to be useless. That's a very harsh word, but it's the reality. The servant has not returned any investment that the master has given to him. He's proven to be a useless servant. And what do you do with useless things? You throw them away. You send them into the fire. And it's a solemn truth, but that is what the Bible teaches. We as human beings are created by God, and we're created for a purpose, for a wonderful purpose, to glorify him and to show the world what he is like. But if we don't do that, if we decide to go our own way and ignore God, then we are useless servants, and we cannot complain when God throws us on the rubbish heap. Notice how he describes it. He says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping because there's no way back. 
There's no way of repentance after death and gnashing of teeth because the pain will be so intense that people will gnash their teeth together in the agony. The master gives the consequences for this man's laziness. Not because he's harsh, not because he's unjust, but because the servant didn't take what was given to him and use it as he ought. Just to round off, um, have you ever seen pictures on the news uh, of a family who has experienced some great injustice? Uh, Often they're standing outside a courtroom and they stand before the cameras and perhaps let's imagine that uh, a member of their family has been horribly murdered. And the criminal's been caught and he's been sent to the courtroom and the judge has sentenced him to his crime, a lifetime uh, sentence or whatever the sentence is. And it's not uncommon, is it, to see that family stand outside the courtroom and they say, it's not enough. Uh, Hanging would be too good for that person. And we sympathise, don't we? Uh, We sympathise with that emotion because we can imagine what it would be like for one of our loved ones to be taken unjustly. And we can very much sympathise with the feeling, sympathise with the feeling that hanging would be too good for such a person. Isn't it interesting that we can so easily feel that way about crimes committed against us And yet we don't feel that way about crimes committed against God. Because, with all due respect to all of us here, we as individuals are relatively insignificant in the big scheme of things. Our loved ones matter a great deal to us, but not a great deal to most other people in the world. And yet we would say things like, hanging is too good for someone who has taken that loved one away from me. And yet, how much worse should it be when we commit crimes against the eternal God himself? How much more shocked and distressed should we be when someone commits sin against him? If we're bothered, rightly, when people commit sin against us, then surely we should be and infinitely times more horrified when sin is committed against God. And when we put God in his proper place, hell doesn't seem so horrific. It starts to seem more just. We may not understand it entirely. We may not be able to wrap our heads around all the justice that God meets out. But we don't need to. As it says in the book of Genesis, the judge of all the earth will do right. And we get a little taste of it when we want justice, when people hurt us. Just magnify that when it comes to sin against God. But I want to end on a more cheerful note. Uh, Because there is one very important fact we need to remind ourselves of when we look at this issue. Because the reality is we can't 
enter into the mind of God fully. We can't fully understand what justice is required. We can't fully understand why hell is as awful as it is. Because we're human. We're finite. But there was one person who did understand it perfectly. And that was Jesus. Jesus Christ, better than anyone who has ever lived, understood the holiness, the righteousness, the justice of God. And he understood it so greatly that in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he saw it laid out before him, the Bible says he sweat great drops of blood. And he said to his father, let this cup pass away from me. But God said, no. And he handed the cup of his justice, the cup of his wrath, and he said to his son, you must drink it. And Jesus didn't say, oh, you're too harsh. Oh, that's so unjust. That's so unfair. Although, in a sense, it is unfair. Because Jesus hadn't done anything wrong, and yet he took the punishment on himself. But Jesus willingly did it. He willingly went to the cross. And if Jesus could bow to the justice of God, then can't we as well? Can't we bow to God's greater wisdom and God's greater knowledge? Especially when we understand that Jesus bore the wrath for us. None of us here, none of us watching online, will ever would never need to spend a single second in hell. There is a way of escape for all of us. Whatever we do or do not understand about it, none of us need ever worry about going there if we trust in Christ, because he has paid the price for us. So if you're ever tempted to doubt God's goodness, if you're ever tempted to doubt God's justice, if you're ever tempted to doubt God's love, look at the cross and you can see God's love shed abroad for us. We may not understand it, but we can see it. And Jesus suffered hell that we could go free. So with your doubts, with your worries and anxieties, run to the cross. Run to Jesus who took the punishment so that we will not have to. And he gives that invitation to all and to everyone. He says, you don't need to experience hell. You don't ever need to worry about that if you come to him. And that's the ultimate answer to those who worry about the doctrine of hell. And with those thoughts I've chosen as our final hymn, uh, hymn number 258. Um, and it's a hymn rejoicing in what Christ has done for us. Uh, particularly, look at verse 4. It says, Because the sinless Saviour died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. So let's sing this final hymn now, rejoicing in what Christ has saved us from or can save us from. So it's number 258.